the world record fast was a Scottish guy. He fasted for 382 days. He lost 120 kilos and he kept it off. Hello, it's Andrew May and welcome to another edition of the Strive Stronger podcast, where we pull apart those two words, strive from the French word estrave, which means pushing through challenging times and coming out the other side, and stronger. It's all about being stronger physically, psychologically, emotionally, financially, in every part of our lives. When we publish a The Science of Podcast, at the start of each episode, I spend just a few minutes giving you a drop-down menu of what to expect. Specific to fasting, Dr. Paul Taylor and I covered five key areas. Number one, the history and evolution of fasting. Fasting can be traced back to the 5th century when the godfather of medicine himself, Hippocrates, was making recommendations on food abstinence to people displaying certain health conditions. A long time later, fasting was highly popularised by BBC broadcast journalist Dr. Michael Mosley's TV documentary, Eat Fast, Live Longer. And there was a book not long after that by journalist Kate Harrison, which was about the 5-2 diet. Number two is the benefits of fasting at a high level, and these include it's highly effective for fat loss. Intermittent fasting increases fat burning hormones, lowers insulin levels, and increases HGH, that's human growth hormone. It helps you hold on to lean body mass, is great for cellular repair, gene expression, there's a reduction in markers of inflammation, it's good for heart health, Several studies have shown fasting reduces risk of cancer. It also increases the brain hormone BDNF and boosts brain health. And there are multiple anti-aging benefits. Paul and I explore this in a whole lot of detail. The third topic we talk about is protocols and feeding windows. We we talk about two different types of fasting. There's a short-term fast. This is generally time-restricted eating and consists of confining all of your eating to a 12-hour, 10-hour, 8-hour, 6-hour, or a 4-hour window, and fasting for the remainder of the day. And seems the most popular plan is 16-8. That's where you fast for 16 hours and eat in an 8-hour window. Then we talk about the benefits of longer-term fasts. Now, this starts at a day of full fasting and can stretch out to literally days. Paul and I explore the benefits of a 4 to five day fast. But again, this is an area you definitely need guidance on and don't dive into this straight away. Topic four, we speak about the difference between men and women when it comes to fasting. Research on intermittent fasting demonstrates gender inequality. There are gender related differences in the metabolic process specific to fasting. One study showed blood sugar control actually worsens in women after three weeks of intermittent fasting and this was not the same for men. The main reason for this is female bodies are extremely sensitive to calorie restriction. As a general rule, we say for men in their 40s and beyond, use fasting as one of your tools to stay lean. For women, get some professional guidance around this. And number five, we talk about additional strategies to fast track fat loss or what I call a hormesis super stack. You're going to have to listen to find out what that means. And this includes exercising and specifically lifting weights before a fast using heat and sauna, and also a few tips on cold water therapy. Now, I could have spoken to Paul about this for hours and hours, but that's a good high-level summary with the five key points, and I really do hope you enjoy this long-form podcast. 
Today's guest is Paul Taylor, a former British Royal Navy aircrew officer. He's a neuroscientist, exercise physiologist and a nutritionist who's currently completing a PhD in applied psychology, where he is developing and testing resilience strategies with the Australian Defence Science Technology Group and the University of Tasmania. Together with his wife, Carly, they are part of the Mind Body Brain Institute, utilising knowledge and insights from the disciplines of neuroscience, physiology, psychology and stoic philosophy to enable resilience and peak performance and to protect what is arguably your most valuable asset, your psychological capital. This bit fascinates me. A few years ago, Paul practiced what he preaches about resilience training and became a professional boxer. We've got to dive into that a little bit today. His new book is called Death by Comfort, How Modern Life is Killing Us and What We Can Do About It. He has his own podcast. I love this one. It's a cracker. You've got to listen to it. It's called The Mind Body Brain Project. He has two kids, two dogs and six chickens. Paul Taylor, welcome to the podcast. The, uh, the chickens are no longer with us. Oh, um, right. Uh, yeah, it's a fo- there was a fox incident. A fox or it could have been a nice lunch. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Now, Gareth Newton, who you know from Combank, uh, a couple of years ago, they booked one event one year and the next event the following year, they had me the first year, you the second year. And Newt said, do you know Paul? I said, yeah, Paul's great. Definitely should book him. He said, well, he's sort of like you, but he's got a better accent. So (laughs) 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 the Irish accent you haven't lost. So we work in a similar space. You know, we work, but I I never look at it like I compete with people like you. I think, you know, really good people in your field helps elevate it. And that's why I've got you on today as well. Absolutely. Absolutely, mate. I, I, I totally agree with that. We just make the space bigger. Yeah, love it. So we're going to be talking about fasting and fat loss today. You and I could talk about this, you especially, could talk about this for hours, and you do on your podcast. To give it a rough frame, though, I thought we'd look at five areas. Number one, a brief history of fasting. Two, the science slash benefits of fasting. Three, protocols and feeding windows. Paul, every time I hear that feeding windows, I think we're talking about cattle. Surely the researchers can come up with a better term. Exactly. Uh, Four is the difference between men and women, because there is a big difference and discrepancy, especially as women get into their 40s and around menopause. And five, give us the fast track tips to fat loss. Sometimes we might call this the cool stuff, uh, but what else can people do? So you happy with that framework? Happy with that. All right, brief history. Crack on. Did a little bit of research because I thought a good podcaster has got to do a little bit of research to set it up, and then I'm just sitting back and it's all to you. But mate, back mate, in- I was just about to say you're clearly a better podcaster than me if, if you've done a bit of research. Oh, come but on. Anyway. We, we said this early, and Craig Harper says similar. You guys have had 25 or 30 years of research, so you've done loads and loads. But my research on the brief history of fasting, Hippocrates, the father of medicine, back in the 5th century, made recommendations about food abstinence to get rid of some health conditions. In the early 1900s, Folan and Dennis, that sounds like a rock band, they began to recommend multiple short starvation sessions. Starvation sounds a lot worse than fasting, but even in 1915, over 100 years ago, it was shown to be an effective and safe form of weight reduction. But from my end, where I really saw fasting, started to listen to fasting a lot more, was Michael Mosley. When, when he was looking at his series as well on Eat Fast, Live Longer, and then he had the fasting diet. So how's that as a history and what do you want to pick up on and explore that's happened since then? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that, that's a very comprehensive history, actually. And Mosley, he is the guy who made this um, really quite famous. But 
I first got into that research reading some research by Mark Matson, who is a, a prolific researcher in the United States. He works at the National Institute of Aging. And, and way back in 2008, he was publishing papers on fasting, on time-restricted eating, and all of those things. And Mosley actually interviewed him in his TV series and just took his kind of ideas and, and commercialized it, like, like any good shark should do. Like any good doctor. Any, uh, yes. But it's common form now. Where I was challenged is when I studied sports science, Gosh, Paul, 20 plus years ago, we were told the number one most important thing every single day is to have breakfast. Yep, yep, absolutely. And, and, and you know, when I studied sports science, that was exactly the same when I did my master's in nutrition oh, way back in 2001. That was the same as well. And, and actually, the way I look at it now, breakfast is we need to look at what that term actually means. It's breaking your fast. Right. So, yes, everybody has breakfast. Everybody still has breakfast, depending on whether you're fasting. But the time at which you do that, the science is now saying, well, actually, maybe we we didn't quite have it nailed. And there's a it's a really interesting conversation opener when we talk about nutritional recommendations, particularly around eating. And, you know, there was that traditional, we should have three meals a day day, and breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And then it turned into three meals plus snacks. So where did that actually come from? And it's really interesting. It was since we, and I use the royal we, started recommending that people eat a low fat diet, which necessarily meant a high carbohydrate diet people got hungry in between meals because of the big spikes in glucose and all of that stuff, which I'm sure we'll talk about. And and then dietitians went, oh, well, okay, you should have three meals plus snacks. No science behind it whatsoever. And now I actually, some of the fasting research is suggesting that maybe it's not the best way to go. If performance, sports performance is your goal, that might be a little bit different to longevity. And I say the same when it comes to exercise recommendations as well, right? So if we're talking about performance, it can be a very different conversation to talking about longevity. Yeah, so the, the, the takeout on that for anyone listening to this who hasn't done fasting is been a lot of the stuff you were taught, especially the food pyramid. I can't believe that that was allowed to be printed on posters. It was at the Institute of Sport you know, way back when I first did some testing there as a junior athlete. They'd have it there, you know, eat as much pasta, bread as you want, no mention <laughs> yeah. of sugar, you know, vegetables yes. and a little bit of meat. And, and we're just educating people for diabetes, really. Look at how many endurance athletes who've had the gels and just tapping sugar on long events so they don't bonk, but then they've totally stuffed, stuffed up the insulin response. But let's stick to what's sort of – it's a good segue into the, the second part I said. Apart from insulin benefits, why would you – or what would you say in a talk or you do radio, you do TV, you're omnipresent, or what would you say to a client who's going, yeah, Paul, I've heard all this fasting stuff, buddy, but why should I really do it? What are the benefits? Yeah, so so the benefits, there's a multitude of benefits, but there are different benefits for different types of fasting. So I think what we we, we have two broad categories for, for me. So one is short-term fasting in its various forms, 
and the other is long-term fasting. So when I say long-term fasting, I mean three, four plus days of just water fast. And so from a, the benefits perspective, and actually it's, it's, it's really interesting as to where this stuff arose. So a lot of it came out of research around calorie restriction. So the likes of Mark Matson and others had, had studied lots of different species from worms that are, and, and flies uh, and then mice, other rodents, and shown that if you calorie restrict any of these species um, significantly, so reduce their calories over and above what they need for normal maintenance by 20 to 30%, generally about 30%, but still give them a, a nutrient-dense diet so as that they're, they're not depleted. They live longer, sometimes 50 to 100% longer, right? So there was a lot of excitement when that research came out about potential longevity benefits of long-term calorie restriction. And then fasting sort of leveraged off that, right? So the benefits around fasting are, are really metabolic benefits and and it's it, it's about diseased protection right so and we mentioned earlier on that you know high carbohydrate diet whether it's the gels and all of that or whether it's just having your three meals a day plus maybe some snacks is, is what happens with your metabolism when you're in this constantly fed state right where the body is getting plenty of nutrients is that that they are triggers for growth, right? So tissue growth, all of that, but also cancer cells, right? So IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor one, which is triggered whenever you are eating food, that will obviously trigger growth growth hormone and, and other sorts of hormones associated with growth, but cancer cells absolutely love being in a fed state they love igf1 right and so it was looking at this calorie restriction research and and the the geeky molecular stuff that was that was really uncovered that actually when you fast there are a number of longevity pathways that are activated. So things like sirtuins, that's a that's a kind of a pathway that's very geeky. It's we also we like to go geeky, especially when we have a, a cool geeky guy here. So don't, <laughs> don't feel you have to go over because I, I want to dig into autophagy, autophagy as well, but you brought yeah, out the okay. sirtuins. It sounds like a, a child's cartoon that you watch after Teletubbies. So go 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 as deep as you want. That's right. Well, well, look, sirtuins basically activate longevity pathways, right? And we, we won't dive too deep into the, the molecular biochemistry. But the other thing that happens when you are fasted, whether you're calorie restricted or short-term fasting, is mTOR is reduced, right? Um, that's, um, you know, these things are, they have abbreviations for a very good reason. mTOR stands for mammalian target of rapamycin, right? And it's basically a growth trigger. Uh, and so the research showed that actually suppressing mTOR and activates stuff like AMP kinase, activates sirtuin pathways, which have all of these cellular benefits that you can see play out in animal models with increased longevity, enhanced tissue health into later age, multi-system organ preservation, right? So it appeared piggybacking off the calorie restriction research that we could potentially activate these pathways 
in a shorter term fasting. Now, why would we want to do that? Well, the calorie restriction research showed, and people were getting very, very excited about this and thinking all of us humans have to restrict our calories by 30%. Unfortunately, the primate models of calorie restriction, long-term calorie restriction, are not showing enhanced longevity. And there are, there's a, there's a few small studies on humans who've been undergoing this long-term calorie restriction. And it would appear that in them that there are certain biomarkers that would indicate that perhaps their longevity pathways are being activated. However, what we also know is they're depressed, they're lethargic, and they have no sex drive, right? So if you want to live that life, then crack on. Because you'll live longer, maybe, but it'll be pretty friggin' miserable. And we don't even know if there's a longevity benefit. So right? for people who've just heard science, churn, autophagy, pathways, mTOR, and they heard two things then, sex life and crack on, pardon the pun. <laughs> They've come alive. So this stuff helps me in my sex life. All right, now, now people's interest has peaked. Yes. So the calorie restriction, the long-term calorie restriction research has fizzled a little bit with humans. There's still, you know, you still have your longevity crowd out there that are still hanging on to this, you know, you've got to restrict your calories. But I think there's much more compelling evidence coming out around fasting and, and the different types of fasting that could be beneficial for humans, particularly in preventing the development of a lot of the chronic diseases, right? And when we're talking about those chronic diseases, um, at generally any chronic disease that that has inflammatory pathways activated in it, um, and, and you know, cancer, heart disease, diabetes, obesity, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, all of those things are inflammatory because what we see with those short-term calorie restriction is reduced levels of inflammation. Right. And and in the animal models, you see in the fasting research, not the calorie restriction, the fasting research, that that also turns out to these guys, these animals living longer. Right. So and we're seeing in humans, you know, we can't really cut people up and stuff like that and, and look at what's going on. But you can see that there are certain risk factors and biomarkers for like heart disease, diabetes, inflammation, aging biomarkers that all seem to react positively to different forms of fasting in some people at some times, right? And that's a caveat that we need to explore. So if I summarize in a lot of the science you've just said, it's going to help people maybe live longer, but yeah. definitely you've got to reduce inflammation markers, massive reduced risk of diabetes and heart disease and, and a whole lot of problems that people didn't really have 100 years ago when we had food on tap. Well, this, this is exactly right. And it's not just the availability of food. For me, and this is probably another podcast, it's, it's that our diet has changed dramatically, particularly in the last 50 years, to the point that in lots of developed nations now, more than half of all calories consumed come from what's called ultra-processed foods. These are things that have lots of additives. They're industrially created. They've got flavor enhancers. They've got preservatives. They've got colors and all of these things. And they destroy our metabolism, right? That and, uh, for me, we're eating far too much carbohydrate since the 1980s when that whole low-fat thing came out that we know most people know is bullshit, but some people, and particularly um, some bodies, some health bodies, are still preaching that message. And some breakfast cereal manufacturers who want people eating the shitty processed carbs for breakfast have got 
institutes with literally millions, hundreds of millions of dollars of research, and they've really whitewashed people into thinking having processed high-sugar brekkie cereal is a good start to the day. It's actually, it's borderline criminal. Look, it is. And and look, well, we're just, if you're happy, just to have a, a little segue into this, because I'm very passionate about this. What most people don't understand, big food is more powerful than big pharma right? And big tobacco, way more powerful. And so there are lobby groups that have been set up to do research ostensibly that are paid by, funded by industry that produce dodgy research that that either backs up very dodgy claims for their products or puts confusion into the minds of people in blaming fat rather than sugar and stuff like that, right? For instance, there's a, a an investigative journalist, Marianne, um, I can never pronounce her surname, Demisai, I think something like that, showed that that basically dietitians Australia were being paid uh, by breakfast cereal manufacturers to peddle their, their research. And, and they actually had this thing that they were um, going out and attacking people who were saying that breakfast cereals aren't aren't good. So me and you are probably going to be on that list, right? And so we have a banned list because we're, we're now talking about it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and 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 we have all these people eating, as you rightly say, Andrew, highly highly processed, sugar laden stuff. And and then you know you look at this star rating system that drives me bonkers that me and my little boy were in the supermarket the other day and and looked at Nutrigrain that has four or four and a half stars and it's 30 grams of sugar per 100 grams, right? It's crazy. If we run parallel lives, let's go on the Nutrigrain thing because well, Kellogg's aren't sponsoring this podcast and they'll listen to this, they never will. But Archie's 11, loves his sport, in the soccer ID, talent ID program, trains four days a week with that, plus he does his own stuff, always moving, said, Dad, it came up, Nutrigrain, Ironman food. said, yeah, mate, if you do an Ironman event, which goes for five hours, and you do that every weekend, you might burn off the sugar. He went, no, thought you might say that. <laughs> so he yeah. comes back with some wheat picks. I'm like, okay, it's still sugar, but okay, have some cereal for, you know, when you've got to get going quickly. But it's amazing how that got through the marketing. It is, and, and, and we are marketed to all the time and 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 because they have done all of this research that sows doubt in the minds of consumers then marketing trumps it right so they create all this doubt from a scientific perspective and then they market the crap out of us right so any anyway but what so what happens let me let me get back to, to to my tact when we are constantly in a fed state and particularly eating lots of carbohydrate and um, we become what's called metabolically inflexible right so as if you look at our species um we ha- had this absolute gift of being able to go through times of of a lack of food a chronic lack of food because we could switch our metabolism from burning glucose as a preferred fuel source to burning fat as a preferred fuel source right the vast majority of people in developed worlds uh, developed nations have lost metabolic flexibility so when you lose metabolic flexibility you are locked in and you are addicted to running off glucose and that means that when your glucose levels drop your brain sets off an alarm and 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 releases all of these hormones things like ghrelin and stuff like that that make you want to eat and and then you reach out for these hyper palatable foods that are available everywhere 
when you lose metabolic flexibility and 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 you're having to constantly eat every few hours um, you are putting yourself in a pro-growth pro-inflammatory pro-diabetes pro-cancer pro-heart disease state right so for for me one of the things that we need to regain is this metabolic flexibility and and I think the best way to do that is a number of different types of fasting. Mm. And we'll go through the difference between a short term and a long term. And I actually want to run by what I do to you and you might tell me that's crap or I, 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 I'm pretty sure it's a line with science. But yeah, in all things, in an authentic way, I'll tell you what I'm doing and give me the thumbs up or sideways or down. But we can't have a fasting conversation without talking about autophagy because a lot of people, I think, are reading about it now. I've heard you define this. So can you give us in your best Irish accent from the uh, – my, my mother's maiden name is Flynn. So uh, yeah, they reckon when you hang around like, like you start talking. So I'll probably sounding like an Irish limerick at the end of this. Uh, but give us your, your definition of autophagy and why that is so important specific to fasting. So I like to talk about autophagy. I like to simplify it and, and talk about local autophagy and then systemic autophagy. So just think of autophagy like a spring clean at a cellular level, right? So um, certain cells, um, lots of our cells, um, will undergo autophagy on a regular basis, where basically they just clean up the cellular junk, right? And they'll actually reprocess quite a lot of that junk. So misfolded proteins and stuff like that and other bits of cellular junk. And they'll reprocess it in the cell and they'll reuse that energy, right? So it's just like, for instance, kind of going through your house, getting all of your old clothes and recycling them, right? Whether you bring them to the salvos or whatever. And it, it's also like a cellular recycling. So that's the local autophagy. And, and we'll talk about our muscle cells and, and how they do local autophagy. Then we have what's called, well, I refer to it as systemic autophagy. So that is system-wide, organism-wide autophagy. And this happens typically when you go into a longer fast. Right. So, so what is actually happening inside your body? Just, just to clarify, though, for people who are starting this, a short-term fast would be a day. A longer-term fast is plural days. Yeah, a, a short-term fast, anything from kind of 12 hours plus, and the longer-term fast is plural days, right? And, and, and often when I talk about longer-term fast, people go, ooh, Oh, that's dangerous. Oh, my doctor or my dietitian has told me that you shouldn't be fasting, right? And there's all of this stuff. I've got a, a research paper. I'll send you. I'll send you so as you can put the link on it, right? It's the world record fast, and it was a Scottish guy. I think it's late sixties, early seventies, and he went to his doctor and he said, "Doc, I'm a bit fat." I think I need to stop eating for a while. Will you supervise me? So the dude was two hundred kilos, right? Wow, he stopped some eating. There. Yeah. There's some fuel there. He stopped eating and his doctor supervised him. And after a while, they put him on a, a little supplement for a short period of time. But he fasted for 382 days. Nice. My two-year-old says, Sophia, no way. That, yes. more, more than a year fasting. 382 days. He lost 120 kilos and he kept it off, right? So... When a dietitian or a doctor tells you that fasting is dangerous, 
we we need to take that with a pinch of salt. Unless you've got something like type 1 diabetes or something Can like that. Can I just that, add to that as well? And look, we, we're here for information and facts. And I'm not saying this just to be controversial. That said, have a look at your dietitian or doctor. Do they look like the model of health? And I, I say this to my clients, Paul, I do. And some <laughs> of them go, oh, mate, you should see my doctor. Uh, I reckon there's three types of doctors. There's the old school doctor who has those little binoculars, you know, the half glasses, and they look down at you. And they are more the omniscient, omnipotent, they think doctor, because when they studied medicine, everyone would go to them. There was no Google. You've got the mid-range doctor, probably our vintage, for late 40s, early 50s, who are open to this, but they may have sort of been still changing the neural pathways and the new doctors who actually study this stuff. But I would still look at your doctor, depending on whether they're a little bit more mature, mid-range or young and fresh, do they look like a model of health and well-being? Because I really yeah, think yeah. your practitioner, one, knowing, two, doing it. That's the person I'd be looking at. And that's why I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you about fasting. Like I, I mean, I'm the same. When I look at someone, a health professional, and if they're out of shape, I just think... You got no credibility. Well, you stand up, stand up, Paul. Tell, take your shirt off. Show us those. <laughs> I've seen yeah, your Instagram <laughs> posts when you do your swim with your your buddies down there on the Mornington Peninsula. But is like, apart from knowing you and being conference buddies, you live and breathe this. So if I'm going to talk to someone about fasting and all the benefits, I look at you and go, "Yeah, I, I want what he's having." It's like when Harry met Sally, you know, table twenty six. It, <laughs> it's obviously it, working for you, indeed. And, and and look, here's the other thing, just about doctors. I and mean, I don't want to bag doctors. However. Your average doctor gets about two weeks of nutritional education, right? Two weeks, right? A good nutritionist, a university qualified nutritionist will do four years, right, of, of nutrition research. Now, is it all good? Maybe not, right? So there's some places that are better than others in, when it comes to that. And, and what we also need to realize is that it takes at least seven years. This has been well established, at least seven years from cutting edge research to get into university curriculum right? And then out into practice. So so that that's another thing. And a lot of the fasting research is relatively new, right? But if we go back to this whole idea of metabolic flexibility, we, we want to have the ability to switch our metabolism from burning glucose to burning fat, right? And there are ways that we can enhance that metabolic flexibility. And there are also cellular benefits of enhancing that metabolic flexibility, right? So for instance, when you, and we'll, we'll, this this will kind of run into the different protocols. So whether it's time-restricted feeding or a 5-2 diet or whatever that may be, that, that when you are prolonging your fast or dramatically reducing your calories, that often, and particularly with the time-restricted feeding, you switch over into burning fat as a fuel source, right? And and so the body will break down triglycerides or, or fat in your body and, and it will produce ketone bodies, right? So ketone bodies, um, they got fancy names like beta-hydroxybutyrate, right? Which is my favorite ketone body because it act has been shown to switch on at least 300 protective genes inside you, right? And so what then happens is that your cells start to run off these ketone bodies. And it turns out that our brain actually operates really, really well off ketone bodies. And and lots of people, you might be the same, will, will tell you that they feel if they're doing a fast, whether it's a 16-hour fast or a little bit longer, 
they, they feel cognitively really, really sharp. We know that if somebody has Alzheimer's disease and you put them on a ketogenic diet and they're having ketone bodies, their symptoms improve because those brain cells that became insulin resistant, right? And this is why Alzheimer's is being called type 3 diabetes. They can't function because, they, they're, because they're insulin resistant so the glucose doesn't get into the cell. But all of a sudden when you switch to a ketogenic diet, they run beautifully off the ketones and and they're like Lazarus rising from the dead or the half dead, right? I reckon I'm, I'm just there now that on the back of a 14, 15, 16 hour fast, I have mental alacrity. The Dr. Tom Buckley, who runs our research institute, Tom's been doing this years before it was trendy. He's another good Irish boy. We'll have to connect you guys and have a conversation. Hang on to that one. Go put the kettle on, grab a wine and you guys <laughs> could go deeper than deep on the science behind it. But Tom has been saying this for years, you know, you, you will get there. When I, when I look at my learning around this, I was a feeder, you know, coming through track and field, the, the food pyramid days. I look back, I was just fueling myself. I was on the insulin roller coaster. I'd always be tired in the afternoon and thought it was because I was running 100K a week in the off season. That would have had something to do with that it. would have contributed. <laughs> there you go. There's one of your problems. But I just wasn't eating properly. So if I look at the metamorphosis I've had, and you know, N equals one, so everyone is different. But my learning was eating all the time, thought I could run, swim, cycle my way out of a high calorie diet, stopped competing as an athlete, worked in team sport, was still active with my athletes, but slowly saw the body shape start to change. And then I went, yeah, I've got to put this into practice in my late 30s. And during my 40s, trying to pull all the levers. So now I will absolutely fast. But for people getting into this as well, I'd say start progressively. Don't go from uh, like absolutely. I've been feed, no, feed, no. feed, run your insulin to then a 16 hour fast because you'll you'll go stir crazy. You blow up, right? So and 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 look, I, I was reasonably similar, right? Um, you know, into did a master's degree in sports science, then in, in, in the military, doing lots of sport, you know, having sports supplements, all of that, pretty high carbohydrate diet. And then just just realize as you get a bit older, that shit ain't good, right? Um, when you're young, you're almost invincible. You can burn anything. Did you fast so in the military? Because you, you, you were in the serious part of military. You went back-end logistics. Really interesting, right? When, when, when I first, the, the big thing that triggered me to get into fasting was, uh, it must have been seven or eight years ago, reading a research paper around prolonged nightly fasting and cancer prognosis. So this was on a bunch of, of, of women. And it showed that those who had a 13-hour plus, or thir at least 13 hours of a night fast regularly, had a 36% reduction in breast cancer risk, right? Which is just off the charts crazy. And the, and the re researchers actually said in their paper, our research suggests that people who eat late at night potentially significantly increase their cancer risk, all cancers, right? Because um, when you get one research paper like that, you go, okay, well, that's really interesting. We need to replicate that. But when there is a, a, a well understood biological mechanism to support it, then it gives it more evidence, right? What's light? How light is light? Uh, so so uh, I'm, I'm going to get to that, right? But what the research is now suggesting, and, and it's not clear 100%, but Sachin Panda is probably, Professor Sachin Panda would be the world leader in the time-restricted feeding, right? And and he says that it's to link in with your circadian clocks, right? So how this operates, 
particularly around cancer, if we just focus on cancer. At night, when you go to sleep, or when it becomes dark, we have a master clock in our brain, just behind your eyes, called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, for anybody who's really interested. And it governs our circadian response. And, and at night, it will switch on or a whole host of biological mechanisms, repair mechanisms. So your brain will repair itself at night. A lot of people don't know that, right? Your cardiovascular system repairs itself at night. But one thing that switches on is your DNA repair enzymes. So these are little enzymes. Think of them. They run all the way through your body, checking out your cells, looking for cancerous and precancerous cells. And when they find one, they tag it. Right? It's just like paintball. They tag it, and then these natural killer cells are released. They get attracted to that tag, and they come along and they eat the cancer cell and then commit suicide. It's pretty cool shit, right? What we now know is that if you eat late at night, we have peripheral clocks in our liver and our pancreas that sense the nutrients. They switch those cl peripheral clocks on, and that turns off your DNA repair enzymes, right? And because they're getting these conflicting signals. So I read that, and I'm like, holy shit. I was a 10 o'clock snacker, right? We'd eat before I go to bed. And same, you know, fitness industry stuff. you got to be in positive nitrogen balance. You know, you've got to eat before you go to bed. And, and I was thinking to myself, Jesus, how am I going to get through the night, right? So I thought, you know what? I'm going to run an experiment. I didn't eat that night. I woke up in the morning and I wasn't dead. I'm like, fuck me, who knew, right? And then I repeated the experiment, didn't die again. And I thought, you know what? You're not hungry at 10 o'clock at night. That's nonsense. Emotionally, it's habit. I was emotionally, emotionally hungry yeah. and bored. So it went with sitting at home on the couch by myself or everyone else is in bed, cup of tea and the biscuits or cup of tea and the chocolate or even you know, I was having the, you know, the the protein to think I'm putting on more muscle at night. But the best thing I could have done is have nothing from 8pm onwards and actually allow your body to get to, to do its wonderful magic. Yeah, it's funny how we've gone through a similar pathway. Yeah, and, and, and actually then, you know, I remember back in the military as you were talking, when we went through combat survival and resistance to interrogation training, for 10 days the only food they gave us was a chicken between four people and it was alive when we got it right so at 10 o'clock at night it's not hunger it's appetite plus habit right so appetite is a psychological desire for food hunger is a physiological need for food and people often confuse them and we get into these habits and we train up our systems and when we're constantly running off glucose, you know, we when we get those dips in it, um, we are triggered to then go and eat food, and then you know all of that stuff happens. So, um, so I started doing it, and and I started initially with thirteen hours, then fourteen, then fifteen, then sixteen. So my personal protocol, I know you were going to talk about yours, is that I'm very comfortable on a fourteen-hour fast. 15 and 16 is a little bit uncomfortable, but definitely doable. Uncomfortable from a physiological point of view or from a, a cognitive processing? I, I, I think it's it's more a psychological point of view where it's that the hunger and stuff like that. But when I'm busy, I don't notice it as much, right? So this morning I did a I did a webinar for NAB. You know, it was it was kicking off at eleven o'clock. Uh, I probably at at seven o'clock last night was my last meal, and then so I'm thinking, okay, so I've done I've done quite a lot, but I thought, you know what, I actually read need to eat, so I just waited until afterwards, and then at maybe an hour and a half later, right? So uh, when we're busy it tends to take our mind off it and we can extend it. But I would definitely say to people, depending on where you're at routinely, 
next week, extend your fast by an hour, then another hour, then another hour, until you get to that 14 to 16 hour window. So for most of us, we will switch over into fat burning as a primary driver after around 12 hours, right? So when you get into that 13th, 14th hour, you're producing all those good ketone bodies, hydrobutyrate, uh, right? Um, you, you're producing all of those awesome ketone bodies and developing that metabolic flexibility, which is really important for our cells. And you get an intelligence around this when you do it. Like I know around that 13, 14, definitely 15, I can feel it. Like I, I can feel my body working, if that makes sense. And now I am starting to get some of that mental alacrity. Maybe it's just psychosomatic, I'm telling myself that. But either way, it is working. When I first started, Paul, for me to go 10 hours without food, and for anyone listening to this, if you haven't started, maybe just go 10 hours. So try and mm, put your yeah. fork down earlier. The golden rule, I think, is fork down the night before so you know start at eight o'clock you've given that wonderful research about our body clock being overridden by the liver and pancreas around 10 p.m interesting what science does right work with it or work against it but you know fork down at eight and then add maybe just go for 10 hours to start with which is not a long time then add 12 and little by little you, your body adapts doesn't it you get you get used to it, it. yeah it, look it does it absolutely does and some people might be better stop my, my wife prefers to finish at five Right, And when she's doing the fasting, she'll finish at five because she likes to get up in the morning and have her coffee. Right, And so it's personal preference. As long as you are getting all of those night hours, right? So, so what? and I get these questions, right? Can I drink alcohol until midnight and then fast until 1 p.m. the next day? No. <laughs> It does more. And this is why I don't do it every day, right? Because I like I like a tipple a few nights a week. So I'm not doing that extended fast, that 14 hour night fast or 16 hour night fast every day. I'm 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 sort of playing with it ad hoc, but I'm definitely getting three days four a days a week. Three probably four. probably four generally. Sometimes three, sometimes five. Right. Well, so for metabolic flexibility, I heard Andrew Huberman, who's a great resource on this, and just sometimes he goes so deep, but just like, whoa, you've lost me, big fella. But if you fast every day, again, you lose that metabolic flexibility. So it's good to you know, do a couple of days, not fast, do a couple of days, not fast, it is, shake it up. It is absolutely good to mix it up, right? Just like it is with your physical training, right? When you're giving the body the same thing, then it adapts. And this is, you know, this is a, bit, a big target of my book where I, I talk about death by comfort is that we have these ancient biological mechanisms that are, are conserved across species and across millennia. Uh, um, um, uh, one of them's hormesis. So hormesis is basically sublethal exposure to stresses or toxins, which at high levels can kill you, at low to moderate levels induce stress resistance, right? So classic hormetic stressors, exercise, um, cold exposure, heat exposure, and fasting, right? But the key thing is that the, the the stressor should be intermittent. It shouldn't be constant, right? Because then your body loses that stimulation from it. So I actually think that the people who are who are obsessive about it may actually lose some of those benefits. And we won't know until we've done, you know, the long-term studies that takes a whole bunch of people and follows them. And this is why human research is really hard to do, right? We, we need a hundred, a few hundred in each group, some of whom do that fasting 
four days a week, three to five days a week, and some who do it every day. And then we look at them for years and years and years and see what's happening. And then try to use statistics to control for confounding variables. And, and it's then difficult. look at psychosomatic relationships, wealth, income, influence. Absolutely. Uh, uh, self-control, self-efficacy. Where do we stop? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I think the, the, the basics for anybody who's wanting to get into it is, as you say, start 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 little bits and add a bit so i'd like to say to people you know just look at your normal fast and add an hour on extend an hour either by getting dinner an hour earlier or extending breakfast out an hour right do that for a week then add another hour on right so you'll take a little bit of time to adapt to it and for people who haven't started just give it a crack and we'll talk about the difference between men and women but i find paul if i've got a male early to mid 40s and they haven't fasted majority when they start plus add a bit of exercise plus to cut down on the calories you're getting that that's three-way approach yeah. the weight just falls off their waist can, can absolutely and, and particularly and 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 maybe this is why that it seems to be better or as a whole it seems to be more effective when we're talking about weight loss particularly it seems to be more effective for males than females now I wouldn't dissuade females from trying the different types of fasting because some of them do really well on it, some of them don't do so well, right? And there's hormones and all sorts of stuff that go into it. But I think at least part of it is that men tend to gather their fat or store their fat around their middle, right? So so we are apple-shaped and that fat, that visceral fat, particularly the stuff that is underneath your stomach muscles is the really dangerous stuff right a lot of females are, are more pear-shaped and will carry their fat around their buttocks and thighs and they complain about it but that shit doesn't kill you right it's the stuff well, around your women was every female you. in australia lives six or seven years longer than men so there is a protective mm. benefit of that uh, absolutely so so and um, and i think that that and this is just my speculation that that may be a reason why men can lose more weight on it or at least it's a contributory uh, i think the hormones are another thing and particularly with postmenopausal women like that can screw with everything right can absolutely screw with everything but more as I said, more men seem to do better on it, but there are different protocols. So I always say to people, just run experiments, right? Nobody can tell you that this is the best way. And in fact, anybody says anything about nutrition and says, everybody should be doing this, that they're either mad, they're trying to sell you something, or they're a member of a cult, right? It's one of those three things. Well, if you get all three, some of those are pretty big businesses and are very powerful. We've got to get you off that. <laughs> That's right. We can't help you with that, right. but we can help you with protocols. I, I like that as a framework for fasting just to start 12 13 14 add an hour every week or so and then get up you know that 14 to 16 hour window find a sweet spot that's two, your sweet spot two or three days that, a week for most people yeah 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 two two three start off with then if you want to add a fourth maybe a fifth but i, I don't know that there are any additional benefits and and you, you know who who knows we we just don't know but I mean, you mentioned Michael Mosley. So we've been talking about what's normally known as time-restricted feeding or time-restricted eating, where you compress your eating into a, a particular window. So there are variations on a theme, right? As you said and right at the start, Michael Mosley made the 5-2 diet quite famous, which is basically, for those who, who have been living under a rock, that's where you restrict your calories significantly on two days a week, generally between five. and He sold a lot more books than you and I 
Mate, uh, I'd, yes, love to, I'd, love to, I'd love to take his book sales, get a zero off it, and, I, and I'd give. Yeah. I, I'd go halves on that. I'd, I'd be happy Absolutely. with that. Absolutely, I'll, I'll share you. Um, but so, so he made that five-two diet famous, and and again, lots of people do really well on it. Again, men seem to do better on the five-two diet than 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 women, right? Um, and and there may be evolutionary reasons for that as well as um, hormonal reasons that play into it. I don't think we know exactly why that is. And then some people, if they're really trying to lose weight, can take the five-two diet and turn it almost into an alternate day fasting, right? And the fasting is used loosely. It's really calorie restriction, where you drop your calories right down to between five and 800, depending on your starting weight, um, for maybe three days a week or sometimes four days a week. So one day you'll eat normally, the next day you drop, and then you eat normally, then you drop. And I actually really like that because... You know, the, the, the research, it was pretty well established 30, 40 years ago that when people just go on calorie restriction diets and they stay on them for a long period of time, as you know as well as me, Andrew, you, your body will just adapt to that by reducing your base of metabolic rate, right? So all it's going to do is go, you know what, we're in starvation mode here. This, this is a famine. So it has these ancient biologically conserved mechanisms where it goes, you know what, I'm going to release more cortisol and I'm going to reduce my base of metabolic rate so as I can survive on less calories. And then what happens is they lose a lot of weight initially and then it slows and it slows and it slows. And so they're losing a lot of muscle. They lose some fat. They lose water weight. You know, the first few days on any diet, and if they it's restricting feel carbs. Shit. Like that's the yeah, other yeah, thing. Yeah, you feel miserable. Yeah. So uh, people are saying, geez, you look good, Sheree. And oh, God, I feel terrible. And this is one of the things, I mean, Yale researchers decades ago identified this thing called high cognitive dietary restraint, where you're obsessing about the stuff that you can't have. And it's psychologically very tough. But they'll lose a bit of fat, they'll lose a lot of water weight initially if they're restricting their carbohydrates, and then and they'll lose a chunk of muscle. And then when they go off the diet because it's unsustainable, they'll put the, fat, the water on super, super quick, then they'll put the fat on quite quickly, and the muscle often does not come on. So you come back to that same level, say it was 80 kilos pre, I lose them down to 70, then I get back to 80. But my 80 kilos now is is, is um, less less. Uh, muscle and more fat, which means that my furnace, my base of metabolic rate is less because muscle burns more calories. Then if I go back onto the original diet, I'm going to start to put on weight, right? And then it's like, oh shit, I need to go on another diet. And it's that yo-yo, classic yo-yo thing that we all see. So that's why that these fasting modalities, that the uh, particularly the five to the alternative fasting, are much better than just being on a long-term diet, right? So, so talk to me about the longer-term fasts. And I, I've started playing with this. I first did it, uh, my family are up on the Gold Coast and we'll drive up because with four kids, you, you've got a lot of a lot of stuff, surfboards and a dog in yes. the car and everything. Actually, what happens, my partner tends to fly with the two young girls. Uh, McF- smart, smart, and, smart. And Michaela will help. So it's just Archie and I and the dog. Right? And I'd started this inadvertently last year, mate, and I just was driving along. We generally go from Sydney to Coffs or Port Macquarie. And it was afternoon and I hadn't 
eaten at lunchtime, I thought, oh, I'll just drive. Uh, I'm, I'm, I find longer term fast, and the research has shown don't do a marathon while you're doing that, right? You naturally yeah, cut down yeah, your activity yeah. level. Yes. Anyway, I did my first day fast, got to Gold Coast the next day, and I felt fine. So I've just started to throw in a day fast about every month. So my protocol is I'll fast at least three, maybe four days a week for that 14 to 16 hours. We'll talk about the the stack at the end. I want to get your thoughts on that. But then I'm throwing in a longer term fast, a day fast every month. So good to do that? Not good to do that? Yeah, look, look, I, I think that's good to do. And and that's that's kind of getting your training wheels on. I think there there, there would definitely be metabolic benefits from, from doing that, right? So we know that once you're in a, a state of nutritional k- k- um, ketosis, and and you're running off those ketone bodies. You're you're enhancing your ability to metabolically switch, which is really good. And doing activating lots of repair pathways in 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 the body. And this is the thing that a lot of people don't understand, right? When you're eating, when you're in a fed state, um, your digestive system is very very expensive to run metabolically, and and so your body suppresses a lot of repair mechanisms and, and other things. When you go into that fasted state, your body takes the opportunity of of your digestive system being shut down to do other stuff, right? And so when we get into that longer term stuff, what we know is that and in rats and mice, it's about two days where they will go through system-wide autophagy. And this is basically a cellular spring clean where the body goes, okay, and there's there's nothing coming in nutritionally. I'm not using this digestive system, which is very energy dense. So I'm going to switch on a whole host of bodily repair mechanisms. And it just goes in and scavenges the body and, and really kills off what are known as senescent cells. So senescent cells, I like to position them as zombie cells. These are cells that are supposed to have committed suicide, and a lot of people don't realize that. It's pretty graphic fasting, isn't it? It's like a, it sounds know, like a. Yeah. You need to come up with a game, like a. It's like a game of Thrones. Nintendo thing, right? Wizards, a game of Wizards. We could add, add some dragons to this. Absolutely, and 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 so this this these zombie cells are a bit like the White Walkers in Game of Thrones, right? So they are they are half alive, half dead. They haven't committed suicide. And if anybody doesn't believe me, you just need to 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 look up that cell program cell death. It's called apoptosis, right? So your cells have this program to commit suicide, but just before they commit suicide, they give birth to daughter cells. Now sometimes the suicide process goes wrong for whatever reason, they turn into senescent cells and they are more prone to cancer and, and other metabolic dysfunction. And these senescent cells will leak out inflammation as well, right? So so really not good. When we do this prolonged fast, your body does system-wide autophagy, where it's basically cleaning up your cellular junk. Now, an important thing for people to know, if you're in your 20s and your 30s, forget about this shit right, until you're in your 40s and your 50s because um, our autophagy processes are pretty good when we're younger. And I always like to say to people, you know, people say to me, why does everything start to fall apart when you're in your 40s and your 50s? And and it's really, it was a, there was a molecular geneticist I used to work with called Margie Smith. And she said to me something I never forget. She said, Paul, we, we have um, 
a pact with our genes and you sign that 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 agreement when you're born and basically your gene says i will look after you and i will keep you in tips top shape but we forget to read the small print and the small print says until you pass optimal childbearing age and then all bets are off this is what people need to understand your genes don't give a toss about you they are just about survival of the species so they will keep you in good health while you're in optimal childbearing age and once you hit 40s 50s you know females go through menopause us blokes go through andropause they stop curing they multiple people are listening to this just skidding on their bikes putting the foot down in the car diving off the bus go ah but look it makes sense to be your best physiologically reproductively and then after that it goes downhill interesting i was in hamilton island about a month ago for a conference isn't it great just side note live events being back on yeah i see your social back doing live events and you're lighting up the stage so good i i think I did a series last week around the country and the organiser said politely, oh, Andrew, can you leave now? I just wanted to talk to people. <laughs> I'll do more. I'll do another half-day workshop. Give me some people. I'll go to a breakout room anywhere. Anyway, back to the story. I'm in Hamilton Island for a two-day conference. Had to be there for four days to you know, acclimatise either sure. side pole. Yeah, you I get, get that, it. I right? get it. And there's this guy, I'm in the sauna and he's there with his girlfriend. They were sailing around. He was in his early 30s, jacked. Seriously, like he'd cross his legs and his his arms and shoulders would ripple, like just like a physiological specimen. Uh, we just started chatting. I'm there pulling every lever. You know, I'd fasted, I'd done weights, and I'm having I, I call it my hormesis super stack, and I'll throw yes. a bit of cold in as well. We'll dig into that at the end today. Point five, and he said, "Yeah, I fast three or four days a week." And I just looked at him. I said, "How how young are you?" He said, "I'm 32." I said, "Mate, I'd stop it now." And his, his partner said, I told you so. I told you. Yeah. Listen to him. And he said, yeah. why? I said, look at you. I said, you just look at a, a dumbbell and you get jacked. Save this shit until you're my age. Keep it in your locker. Yeah. Keep that's what it I said in to your him. locker. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and he said, what should I do? I said, get out. Have more fun. Eat more pizza. Yeah. <laughs> if you've got genetics like that, seriously, save it because you're not going to have any arsenal in your 40s and 50s. So yeah, it's uh, yeah, just no, really interesting hearing you say a, that. It, it's a really good point, right? And and so and particularly the longer term fasting, right? You want to keep that in your locker until you're in your forties and fifties because your body does autophagy very well when you're younger, right? And it, it's it's us old blokes that need um, this this autophagy. We're not old. We're mature. Like we're going to get everyone well, to hundred. Nineties old. I'm a fair bit older than you, I reckon, Andrew. I'm I'm 51 now, so and so certainly things are slowing down for me metabolically, right? So and that's where I brought more stuff out of my arsenal, right? And so, but what what happens with this system-wide autophagy is something that's really really useful to do. Now that does, and 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 we don't yet know where the line is for humans, right? For Mice and rats, it seems to be about two days to induce this. That has been been translated to human research at about four days. And research has shown that we do do autophagy after about four days, right? Now, a four-day water fast is pretty hardcore. And so this this professor in the United States... Have you done a four-day? Yeah, well, yeah, I've done a a four-day. I did a 10-day 
that in, in the military that was not by choice, that was um, just broken up by a quarter of a chicken on day four. Um, but I've, I've, I've done that, right? But I did under better conditions, not forced. I, I did the five day, right? So I've done a four day water fast and I've done the five day fasting mimicking diet that was created by Professor Walter Longo. And, and it's called Prolon. So listeners can can just jump on Google fasting mimicking diet or Prolon. Yeah, perfect. And so he he was a, a a cancer researcher and found that his patients that because he's he'd seen all the, the mice and rat studies, so he thought, look, this is great because it's gonna give um, system-wide protection and there's a line of research that opened up that shows that doing a prolonged fast around the time of chemotherapy actually protects your non-cancerous cells against chemo it strengthens them and it weakens your cancer cells because they can't do autophagy right so and 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 um, so they get weakened and the cancer becomes more targeted so he's thinking this is great every cancer patient needs to do a four or a five day fast around the time of their chemo but then he realized well geez a lot of them are losing weight right and so they can't do it so he created this diet called the fasting mimicking diet that basically tricks your body into thinking it's in a fasted state right so it's basically a dramatically reduced calories. So for the likes of me and you, down to about between five and 800 calories a day. I think it starts off at 800 and drops to 500. But there's certain amino acids like leucine that cannot be in the diet because they trigger growth pathways, mTOR that we talked about. So there's no animal protein in this diet. It's relatively high fat, moderate protein, low carbohydrate. Right, and that tricks the body into thinking it's in, a, in its fasted state. And you can actually get his research paper and look at the supplementary data and see the diet and recreate it. Right, um, so or, or you can just buy it. It's about three hundred bucks now. He adds in a nutritional supplement that has been patented. That I think the only reason that it's in there is that so that he can sell his product and people don't go, I'll just go and create my own diet that mimics that, right? So, so for it, but but anyway, because four or five days, you're not going to develop nutritional deficiencies in those four or five days. Now, maybe if you got your own chemotherapy, that that stuff is quite important. But what both of those things do is they up, they activate that system-wide autophagy. And they kick in a whole host of other bodily repair mechanisms, right? So you kill off a lot of bad cells, cancerous cells, senescent cells, and you actually enhance the resilience of your existing cells, which is pretty cool. So as people get older, you know, this may be a once a year thing. What, 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 what do you do? So your practice, you, you told us what you do every week, three or four times. What, what do you do monthly, quarterly, annually, as far as a long fast? How often, how many days? So so for me, just just once a year, because I'm still in pretty good shape. So for me, I just go, you know, that's a cellular spring clean. If somebody- Five days, four days? Uh, yeah, four, four or five days. I think, I think four, it, from my reading of the research, seems to be enough, right? But again, we need to get, we need to have the studies done, right? And so- once once a year just to give Cisco, you know what, it's a cellular spring clean, right? And and if the 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 actual full water fast is too much, go for the fasting mimicking diet. Spend a few hundred bucks and get yourself one of those. Now, if I was as I get older, my intention is probably to do it twice a year. 
if I had a metabolic condition, I would be going, maybe I'll do this every quarter. I'll start off twice a year. Maybe I'll do it every quarter, right? Particularly if you've got some kind of early signs of diabetes or heart disease or you're overweight or, or those sorts of things. I, I think that certainly as you hit into your 40s, late 40s and particularly into your 50s and certainly your 60s, you want to be doing this a couple of times a year, if not every quarter. So if we summarize, if you're in your 20s and 30s, get out of here. You know, just go yeah, yeah, be yeah. young and look at you. you... And, and look, if you need to lose weight, maybe 5'2 or um, time-restricted feeding, right? Yeah, and cut back alcohol and just cut back calories and move more in well, that area. Most, most of it's just about alcohol, right? Yeah. And, and, and it's really interesting. I was talking to my little guy. Sorry to, to interrupt. But he's like, Dad, why does no, it's your interview, mate. You, yeah. you don't interrupt. I'm asking you the questions. Just go but on. He, he said to me, well, why don't they tell you all the calories on alcohol? And, and I thought, I actually don't know. And and, and it would be, and I, I, I actually had a dream that if I became a health minister or a politician, I would put forward a motion to make sure that Everything had to, in big letters, say how many calories are in that beer or how many calories are in a glass of wine because a lot of people would drink less. If you that care was the for the first few. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. So summarising on fasting, in your 20s and 30s, just live a healthy, balanced life. Yes. Really start to pull these levers in your 40s. Go for the shorter-term fast. Start at 12 hours. Build up to the 14, 15, 16, three or four days a week. But to get that flexibility, metabolic flexibility, don't do the same thing all the time. Shake it up a little bit. Yep. Yeah. Shake it up. Then in sure. your 50s, depending on your shape, if you're a lean, mean, former fighting machine like you start to do it once a week to do your cellular spring clean but as you get into your 50s 60s and beyond you would do a couple of those four or five days that's a really good process because i've been wrestling with this as well so thank you for helping clarify that because there's so many different theories modules Tanya Zayada has the lemon detox, the you know all the yeah, celebrity yeah, bullshit yeah. as well. So yes. I think that's a really good roadmap. What we've just covered from playing with this to longer, and as you get older, just going for longer periods because you need to pull every lever possible. Yeah, that's right. And 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 look, this is this is just my thoughts, having read a lot of the research in this area. Some people may say other stuff, right? Some of the longevity crowd would say some other stuff, right? But uh, again, there's some of the longevity crowd that, that tied a lot of stuff that I don't agree with, right? Like, you know, that me and you should be on metformin right now, you, you know? Um, not a big believer in that sort of stuff. You know, you keep that in your locker until you really, really need it. If you own a company that produces compounds that has metformin in it you've got to say that i think i think we all know who we're talking about here yeah exactly and 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 a lot of nutritional stuff you know it comes from preaching by people who have vested interests yeah caffeine something we can talk about and we're not treading on any dubious areas uh in a fast not a fast do you do it do you have caffeine when you're fasting? Uh, yeah, look, I, I, I do, but I, I drink weak tea, so it's not a lot of caffeine. And I drink black black tea, so there's no issue there. Now, what I'd say, say, say to people, if you're, on, if you're looking for weight loss, then having a cup of coffee isn't really going to matter, right? If you want metabolic flexibility, so my wife wrestles with this, and I said, look, if you're having a 13 to 15-hour fast, 
and you have a coffee, my wife drinks it with cream, I said, you're probably not going to trigger enough of a glucose response to kick you out of ketosis, right? Now, if you're having a latte, then you probably would, right? But a dollop of cream, or if you're on a bulletproof coffee, you know, the, where they put the MCT oil in the butter, that's that's fine if you want, if it's ketosis that you're after, right? Now, if you are after the benefits from a, a, a perspective of anti-cancer and, and having that at least 13-hour night fast, no caffeine in that because the caffeine, the, the thinking is, is going to trigger the shutting down of your DNA repair enzymes or Can potentially could. Can we cut this could. bit out? Because in my fast, I have a piccolo. <laughs> and uh, like it really is a dash of milk. And, and I like that. And that's my and, little and, reward. And, and, and look, that, that, as I said, that dash of milk is not going to kick you out of ketosis, right? And, and, and the easiest way for people to understand this is, is to just get yourself a glucose monitor. Right, I've I've got one right here because because at the minute I'm running a little self experiment. Mm. I have, Tom gets us to wear the patch, see, yeah, the patches right, right here. So I have a I have a a continuous glucose monitor, which inserts a little tiny needle into yeah. my Doctor right, Tom my gets us to wear them. Oh, you can the, have you can the have arm. the other one yeah. on the patch there. Yeah, yeah, and and it's brilliant, right? So once you what, what, once you calibrate it, it just gives you a constant reading. So I can actually see, and I've just been running an experiment out of interest to, to just notice how certain foods affect my blood sugar and, and how certain foods don't impact it at all. And then other foods will just send it, boom, haywire, right? Well, I reckon um, with you, two is new at spike at Guinness, it probably drops your insulin levels get, down. Get, get, get Guinness <laughs> it, it would definitely um, put me into ketosis and activate all sorts of cellular benefits. Yeah, absolutely. But it's Long just, it's, it mixes with the Irish genes. Awesome. doesn't work for Australians or English people. The difference between men and women, primarily from fasting, what guidelines do you give? Because from what, what I see, you get, most guys in their 40s or 50s to fast, weight falls off. With women, it's it's more complicated. I had a, yes. a, a female client say to me recently, it's because we have much more complicated, beautiful bodies. Absolutely, yeah. But especially women getting towards menopause, it's not just fast and lose weight. So how, how do you explain, how do you frame that, the difference? Yeah, look, there is definitely differences. I don't think Anybody knows exactly why those differences are. Because as I said earlier, some, some women still do well on, on fasting. Some will do well on a 5-2 diet, but not well on the time-restricted feeding. Some, it'll be the other way around, right? So, and as you come towards menopause, you know, these things, it certainly complicates things because all sorts of hormones are changing quite significantly. Now, and this is the thing that, that, that some will go, okay, there's pre-menopausal women, they've been on fasting and it hasn't worked. They haven't lost any weight. Unless there's a control group of premenopausal women who are doing this, the, 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 the same intervention, either doing the same study, and they are not fasting, we don't know whether they're having any benefit or not. Because yes, they may not be losing weight, but they could have put on weight if they weren't fasting, right? So this is the sort of stuff that when you when you start to tease open the research, it's like, well, okay, what exactly is going on here? We don't know. Now, we do know that, that certainly the hormones play a part. So they may or may not nullify the impact of fasting, but it, it, it's certainly not 
species-wide as in the female of the species-wide. So I just say to people, run experiments. Like anybody should be on any of this fasting is just run experiments and see what works for you. And I love that you're the living, breathing, and, and we do this as well with Dr. Tom and I. You've got to practice mm. this stuff because you if you're to. going to tell people to do it as a practitioner, know what you're doing yourself. But for people who are listening to this, the majority of the audience who aren't practitioners, just try because – Different things work for different people. And I, I've adapted you know, my fasting, fat loss, fitness, strength training regime. Some of it I do because I just like it. Some of it might be psychosomatic, but you can also see the, the other thing, run a barometer. I, I think the KPIs we all miss, you know, we, we put in our tax returns. At the time of recording, a lot of people are you know, getting ready for that or just getting the, the benefits from last tax return. But we need KPIs on our body. So you know, some basic ones, you know, what's your waist measurement? Scales, I think is okay. We could get into your bioimpedance or doing a full analysis, you know, what percentage of your body is fat, what percentage is muscle? You don't need to get that detail. I, I think the basic metric for, for me is scales and waist. Yeah, yeah. And, and 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 I'll take waist um, circumference. I think that's a superior measure than than scales, but a combination of both of them. And and you know the big thing for people out there, and this is why I love waist circumference as opposed to BMI. Me and you know the the, the issues with BMI. Well, your average football player, basketball, athletic netballer, are they yeah, on the obese scale? Obese, I mean, and it's preposterous, right? It, it's a reasonable population measure, but for individuals, it's useless. So, so waist circumference, and the messaging is really simple. Try to get your waist less than half your height. Doesn't matter whether you're male, female, Hispanic, Asian, fat, thin, What it it. Everybody, that same rule applies. Whereas at BMI, it, it can be different for different um, groups of people. Yeah, it's, it's such a simple one. So for me, I, I try and keep my waist at 85 centimetres. And if it's not there, I'm trying to pull levers as we mature and as I turn over in the 50s in the next couple of years, big fella, is that's just a barometer. And, and you know where you're at, up or down, and then just pull the levers around it. It's, it's, it just seems a really simple metric that most people can follow. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you know, when it gets above that, or, or so, you, you know, if your waist is significantly higher than half your, your, your waist, try to get it down as close as possible. What's your right? waist? And like, you're, you're lean around you. Your I'm, I'm assuming, sure, I'm 85, 86, right? And I'm, what, 182 centimetres tall. So I'm, I, I, me and you have a significant amount of bandwidth to play with, right? But it's, it's just about trying to get that to talk, and that's that's the that's the metric that I've been using for the last number of years. And I I I also weigh myself, so I think those two are pretty useful. I like to every couple of years go and get a DEXA scan, right? And, and I'm sure we send you're our high end clients to that. And I try and do one at least every year, and then that you really get a good overall look at visceral Picture. fat. Where's everything? So, Totally, and, and and your muscle mass and your your uh, bone mineral density, which is really important. I mean, a lot of these bioimpedance things, particularly the home ones that you know, Tanita scales and stuff like that, uh, have got pretty big inaccuracies. So they're not quite there yet. The more sophisticated ones you're getting in the gym are getting better. We had Tanita, but- and I just stopped. One of our practitioners had them, and I stopped using them because of such a wide range and and also hydration. 
We're just trying oh, to really massively. Now, you, if you're on the piss the night before and you come in dehydrated, you get a massively different score if you're hydrated. If you're a female, you're on your menstrual cycle, you'd get a significant different score. And the, you know they've got a ten percent error rate at, at at least. I mean, it used to be, it used to be ten more than ten percent in terms of of real number, which could translate to up to a fifty percent error rate. Right. So now they're better than they used to be, but it's still not the way ahead. For me, the only thing is decks are, are underwater weighing, and underwater weighing you can't get it. If you're not unless you're in a lab, so a DEXA scale, you'll get them in Sydney, you get them in Melbourne, you get them all around the place. Keep Go it simple. Go your waist. Make sure your waist yeah. measurement is half your height. Really simple. Absolutely. Let's get a little uh, bit absolutely a little bit less simple. I call this fast truck fast track fat loss strategies, or this is my Hermes super stack. So uh, N equals one, but also listening to a lot of the researchers and, and people like you in this space as well, Paul, I'll go, especially on a Tuesday, because I try and do Tuesday as an MFD with respect, I tell the rest of my team to get out of the office so I could work in there with four kids. There's not much quiet time in my house. You know, I go to work to to have time out. Yes. So on a Tuesday, I'll generally have a meeting-free day in the office. I'll fast. I'll work through and do weights around lunchtime, 11 or 12 o'clock. I will have one or two little coffees, uh, the piccolo, during that time. And then at the end of uh, the fast, I'll do weights and I'll try and do some big lifts. So, you know, the big four, try and a combination of you know, squats, bench, deadlift, chin-ups, not every time, but some big lifting. So 40, 45-minute weight session. Then I'll jump in the sauna at the end of that. So thoughts? Bang on, I would say, in terms of thoughts. So uh, that is, it's relatively similar, although you are more structured than my protocol. I'm a bit more scattergram. But right, but I like to I like to do my my resistance training, and I'll mix it up a little bit, right? So, the uh, my aim is that two days a week I will do the heavier stuff that we talked about. So I'll do deadlifts on one of those days and squats on the other, and I'll combine that with chin ups and one other exercise. And I do a tri set of those three exercises. Generally takes me three minutes, and I'll do six rounds of that. So I'm doing about eighteen sets. But I'm kind of done in just around 20 minutes, right? And then I'll go and I'll jump into the sauna uh, and I'll have a sauna because, as you know, after you've been resistance training and then you get into a sauna, growth hormone can spike um, three to 500% increase in growth hormone, which is just fantastic, right? So I, I, I like doing the sauna after my resistance training. And then on the other days, I will do um, more of a circuit-based resistance training. Um, so I'll, go, I'll just go into the gym. I'll do 30 seconds of work, 10 seconds recovery, and I'll do anywhere between 20 and 28 sets of that. But again, I'm done in less than 20 minutes, right? Mm. So uh, most of my I, I stuff- I love that. Well, you're busy as well. And yes. a lot of people go, oh, I don't have hours to go to the gym. You don't need to. The people no, you who don't see the gym hours, if you're a- World-class bodybuilder, body shaper, yeah, you've got to put in hours of reps and sets to tone and shape and get the difference between your medial and anterior and posterior yes, deltoid. Yes. But most people, you know, just lose a bit of fat and get a bit of muscle and you feel great. And 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 here's the thing about why resist. So, so I'll also, you know, I'll go for a run. And I, I go for a run in the mornings with my little guy, Oscar, and we go, we go together and the two dogs, and we do it pretty close to sunrise for a couple of reasons. So number one, I want to exercise in the fasted state. So when you're doing some particularly cardio in the fasted state, it increases autophagy within your muscle cells, right? But, um, and I want to do it uh, out in the light, close to sunlight as possible, because that early morning and evening light 
reset your circadian rhythm, right? So so that's great. So I'll often do a run in the morning. I told sometimes you we were similar. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Sometimes I'll do another one, but I'm not going far. I'm doing one and a half, two Ks in the morning and, and the same in the evening. And it's not every evening, but, but you know, I'm kind of running maybe. I'm not a big runner, not like certainly not in, in your territory. Maybe I'll do 20 Ks a week of running, oh, but man, I'm I, doing... That was, I don't run much. I, I, a big run for me now, it's 5K and I'm at the stage. How old's Oscar? He's 12. Okay, Archie's 11. On a Sunday night, we have the Ma May fun run, my best mate from Dubbo, Greg Ma or Mario. Um, he's got you know, two kids. We meet at our place and we all walk or run over the Harbour Bridge. It's 30 minutes, right? And everyone goes out 15 and back and we all meet. The kids generally have ice cream and we try not to because we're being disciplined. So it's a nice ritual we've, we've just started, but it's also fitness. Yeah, cool. And Archie... Just at that stage where he's saying to me, Dad, you know, when you were my age and you were running, what times were you doing? And uh, when do you think I'll start smashing you? And a little, uh, he's competitive. And, and we've, I've worked out, I, I think it'd be about 15, 16 when he'll start beating me. Because, you know, the old dog, we still got a few tricks. And if we did a fun run, I'd beat him psychologically because I'd know how to get inside his head. But last night I had a scare and because he's got zoned this week. And Mario said, oh, are you going to run with us, Arch? He said, no, just dad said to do two or three K and then I'll head back. So he sort of took off ahead of us. Anyway, he did, came back and he's done four and a half minute Ks. He's not even puffing. We've yeah, gone, okay, sort of five minute Ks and just Mario's easing back into it. And he looked at me and said, how long do you reckon it is, dad? I'm like, it's not far away, mate. Do you have the same challenge as Oscar? Want, do you want me to give you a story? Yeah. Oscar smashes me in a 5K, smashes me in sprinting. He can now beat me in a beep test, although I haven't done one for a year because of my hip. So he, he's got, uh, what did he get? 12.4 um, in a beep test as well. Uh, I know, he's, he's 12 and he, he beats me in everything. He can out sprint me, he can outrun me. Like he, he's running um, sub four minute Ks. He, he went out for a run two Sundays ago, went out for a run and it was a couple of hours and I'm like, where the hell's Oscar? And he came back in and he ran a marathon, a half marathon. Just he'd never done it before. Mostly he'd done ten k's, and he went out and he ran, and he thought he was five k's in. He said, oh, "I'll do ten k's," and he got to ten. He says, "I'll do another one. I'll do another one." He came back. He'd run twenty one k's in about two hours. Right? Wow! And I'm like, "You got a little Holy distance, distance running yeah. on your hands there." But he's a sprinter as well, right? So he's that's the first time he'd done that. So he's beating me. We were just talking about this the other day. The only thing I can still beat him on is cycling and boxing. <laughs> And I and said, Jim, mate, if you beat Jim. me at cycling, we're getting in the ring. Yeah, wow. I love it. Good role modeling. That's another podcast for another day. So the yeah, other yeah, thing exactly. on this- So, mate, I'm, I'm gone. I'm, I'm just, I'm starting to live vicariously. Oh, I'm on borrowed time, I think. Uh, the, the final question I had for the Hormesis super stack is cold. Yes. Because I know yes. you, like me, swim yeah, in the ocean. Yeah. Uh, yes. You're a little bit colder there on the Mornington Peninsula than we are in Sydney. Yes, but I'll, pretty hard. Do you, sw you swim all year round now without no, wetsuit? So, so, so no, no, I, I will it's generally over winter, although it's been hit and miss this winter, more miss than hit, but certainly the last two years we get in once a week and just get into it. I generally, just because it's handy, um, I'm getting into my swimming pool. So I'll get into the sauna. Now, if I haven't done weights, I will get into the sauna I'd into our pools it's been about 10 degrees which is pretty chilly so I'll get into the pool for a couple of minutes then back in the sauna then out into the pool I'm a 
big, big fan. And even if I've done weights and then I'm in the sun. Now, some people say, what, what, why weights? What's that got to do? We know that if you have done resistance training and you get into the cold, you can lose the gains that you've got, right? Because it dampens inflammation and we need that pro-inflammatory state to create muscle turnover, right? So if you've just done a strength training session, stay away from prolonged cold exposure. Having said that, I'll do my weights, I'll get into my sauna, I'll do 20 or so minutes in the sauna, and then I'll jump into the pool, I'll submerge just for 10 seconds, just to, I love, I, I am now addicted to the noradrenaline blast that you get from getting into that cold water and particularly submerging and getting your face into it. I have a cold shower every single time I've had it. I have a shower and I've done that for the last six years without fail. So I'm a big fan of cold exposure. Why is that? When you get into the cold, there are within milliseconds, there are receptors under your skin that sense the cold. They send a signal to your brain and your brain switches on this full coordinated body and brain response, right? It massively increases noradrenaline, which is a, a, a noradrenaline stress, um, norepinephrine, the Yanks call it. That is a stress hormone, but it's a feel-good stress hormone, right? And it's to do with focused attention. Dopamine will increase massively as well. And dopamine is about motivation to act, right? And so you get that huge increase in, in brain chemistry that, that both dopamine and noradrenaline actually happen to lift your mood as well, right? Your immune system, your immune cells, your immune system is, is upregulated when you get into the uh, to the cold. And you see that studies of, of those cold water swimmers who swim all year round, they have better cardiovascular function, they have better immune function, and they live longer, they don't get sick because the cold activates your immune system. Now, here's one other thing that is very, very tantalizing for me. A research paper released this year in Cell Metabolism, which is a brilliant journal. They took, um, these researchers were testing hypothesis. They had these um, mice that they had bred to have multiple sclerosis, right? Which is a very serious autoimmune condition. And half of the mice, they did forced cold water swimming every day and, and and didn't do the intervention on the other half of the mice. The, the other half that didn't get the intervention, they just declined. And the half that got the intervention, they started to regrow myelin on the nervous system. Now, I, uh, just to give that, uh, that in context, MS is a disease that attacks the nervous system and it particularly the myelin, which is the fat that coats your neurons. Think of it as the plastic that, that insulates a wire, right? That makes it run better. So when that myelin is getting degraded, your nervous system basically falls apart. This is the first intervention that has shown regrowing of the myelin sheath. And their theory, and, and this is the reason I bring this up, is that the, the hypothesis they tested, you, your immune system is very expensive to run. It's like your, your digestive system. So an autoimmune attack, when you have it, uses a shitload of energy. Anybody who's got an autoimmune condition knows that, particularly when they're having an autoimmune attack, they are, they've got no energy. Now, that cold shock response is super, super expensive to run because your body switches on your cardiovascular system, your immune system, you know, freaking everything's going on here. So the brain is now presented with two um, challenges that are both energy dense, energy hungry, and it basically has got to choose. And it's always going to prioritize survival. 
So it dampens down the autoimmunity. Now, this research comes off the back of a huge amount of, of just anecdotal reports of people doing stuff like the Wim Hof and doing cold exposure and going, my autoimmune conditions improving, my depression, my anxiety, all of this. Now, creative thinking. It, Create, yeah, all of that stuff. And and here's one of the other things, just before we, we leave this topic, Andrew, is is that for me, all of those things are inducing a hormetic response. So the exercise, the heat, the cold, in particular, what they have in common, and, and maybe the fasting, is that they are training our stress response system. So every time you're exercising, you are training your system to switch on, but switch off quickly. And this is, I think, why we're seeing that people who exercise more deal better with other stresses, be it psychological or other, other stresses, right? Same with heat, same with cold. It's that discomfort, um, that, that pushing yourself into discomfort, hormetic discomfort, is activating your stress response system and then switching it off. And and that improves the function of your stress response. So that, that's my hypothesis that I'm now testing in my PhD. Well, I'd, I'd love to do a separate discussion on heat and cold. And I did an experiment, as you know, a couple of years ago. I had to train myself in cold water. So I, I disliked it with a passion. But when you swim the English Channel, it's 14 degrees and you don't wear a wetsuit. So you, you have to. And through exposure, I started doing this. And I love it now. I swim all year round and just wear a cap, you know, keep my hair dry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it, it is. And I found the benefits of it. I I love it. Like I actually long for it now in the winter to hop in the cold. Sounds crazy. My friends go, you're mad. But it's just the feeling and the discipline around it. So yeah, another conversation, another day. But specific to fat loss, that helps as well, getting in the Yeah, oh, I, I, absolutely. And what we know is that chronic cold exposure, and I don't mean being out there for a year in the cold, I mean doing it regularly, activates this non-shivering thermogenesis, which is basically it increases brown fat. And so if we were to look at you, Andrew, you would have significant amounts of brown fat, more than somebody who's not swimming and particularly around the, the back, that's where it tends to accumulate. But why is it brown? It's brown because it's got higher mitochondrial density. So your mitochondria are like the batteries of your cells. So when you expose your muscles and your fat to cold, they get more mitochondria. And that, that mitochondria then uses more energy. So people can lose weight when they get more brown fat, right? So you're basically, you're turning a, a fat cell that doesn't use much energy into a super high energy using cell, almost like a muscle cell. And so you're burning more calories at rest if you have more brown fat. I love talking to an exercise physiologist, neuroscientist and nutritionist who gets really exciting and makes stuff like autophagy and mTOR sound sexy. You should... <laughs> You should write a book about this. Uh, in fact, you have. Ah, boom. I'm so happy. You know, we've had this conversation over the years. You poor bastard in your language. You had a book a number of years ago. Remember we caught up at the Novotel in Melbourne and you lost it on your hard drive and I could feel the pain. But you have a new book. It's out. It's a fantastic book. Death by Comfort, How Modern Life is Killing Us and What We Can Do About It. Good segue back into 
plugging your book because you, you love this stuff. It's so passionate. It's on your podcast every time we catch up. How can people get your book? It is going to pre-release in a couple of months. So the release date is actually November. I am finding out when pre-release is. So just check intermittently. It's definitely out in November, but there will be pre-ordering before that. I'm not sure when. I think maybe at the end of September, you'll be able to pre-order it in all the good places. Awesome. And for people who want to book you, follow you, connect with you, where's the best place to find you? Best the um, website if you want to do an inquiry, mindbodybrain.com.au and the podcast, if you like this stuff, uh, my podcast is the Mind Body Brain Project. Uh, I'm also on Instagram at mindbodybrainpi. Final question, is is there a question I, I should have asked you or you would have liked me to ask you or is there a question you'd like to ask me and then we'll wrap up and get back oh, to Oh, no, that's an interesting one. Yeah, I'm going to ask you and you should have asked me about myokines, right? Um, but I'm going to ask you when you switched from long-distance running, high-carbohydrate diet, to now doing a bit more resistance training and have changed your diet. What was the trigger for you to switch all of that stuff? Was it one trigger or was it just a slow creeping, oh shit, I've been doing it wrong? It was a Facebook post on Telebudgera Creek on a stand-up paddleboard. And I, I know this when you're asking this, I thought I know the exact answer because it was the genesis of MatchFit. And I thought I was fit because, you know, as a middle-aged male swimming in that river in Egypt called Denial, what I was looking in <laughs> the mirror and seeing was different to what others because I still thought I had, you know, full head of hair and washboard abs. And I had my daughter, <laughs> Michaela, and my gorgeous niece, Sahara, on the front of the SUP. And then I just zoned in the photo later that night. I was at my mum and dad's house and I went – Oh, what's that? That's a it's a gut. <laughs> gut. Yeah. And <laughs> during my twenties was just yeah, as an athlete and then thirties and then it caught up on me. Actually late thirties also went through a marriage breakdown and the way I was surviving was speed dating, fast food and alcohol. Not really sustainable. Paul. And I just thought, I've got to turn this shit around. So I totally changed my diet. I really went on more of a higher fat diet with you know, lots of good veggies and cut back the alcohol dramatically. And I just experimented with it. I put together a team of people. I, I got a nutritionist. I actually started working with a site because I was in denial about a lot of stuff as well. And started training with a great trainer named Dan Bradley and got into resistance. And, and, and now, it's a, eight or nine years later, I do a lot more strength training. Yeah. A little bit of cardio, short, sharp, harder stuff, and a lot more balance, stretching, and, and swimming. So yeah, it was a, it was a a photo, and then when I looked at it, blown up. I was like, one, why the hell did I post that? Two, this shit's got to change. <laughs> <laughs> and I just feel better training like this. So like you, live and breathe it, practice it, and hopefully pass on combination of evidence base, but also stuff to make it fun and engaging. Yeah, absolutely. Very cool. All right, Chuck, get cool. out of here. Love your work. Super. Thanks, mate. Okay, bye-bye. Great to talk, as usual. Cheers. Hey, it's Andrew, and we hope you enjoyed that episode. We would really appreciate it if you helped us amplify the Strive Stronger with Andrew May podcast by sharing episodes with colleagues and friends and going to iTunes and leaving a rating and review. This really does help us get this message out to a wider audience. And if you would like to know more about how Strive Stronger 
uplifts teams through optimizing human performance and well-being, make sure you check out strivestronger.com. And if you'd like to know more about my personal practice, focusing on all things human performance, go to andrewmade.com where you can explore the books I have written, including MatchFit, which has now sold over 85,000 copies, or book me as a speaker at your next annual conference or company offsite, or if you'd like to really turbocharge your business and personal success and wake up to a better way of living, working and leading, check out my brand new evidence-based Human Performance Academy that starts in July. I'm really, really looking forward to getting that going. And if you'd like to receive regular updates from me each month, make sure you subscribe to my monthly e-newsletter, the AM edition.